Welcome to the Finding a Job podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Billings. Joining us today is Danny Kim, pharmacist by training, designer at heart, investor in action. Danny is a pharma D student at Northeastern University, where he founded Vital, Northeastern's healthcare innovation hub. Danny invests in startups with Country Capital, a university-focused venture firm backed by founding members of Facebook, Tesla, Reddit, Airbnb, and more. In the past, Danny worked with Pillpack, a full-service pharmacy startup simplifying medication management. The company was acquired by Amazon for $1 billion during his stay. He's an advisor to family offices pertaining to their healthcare tech investments and regularly writes on the digital Becquery coming soon and kimdanny.com. Danny's a Forbes 30 under 30 fellow, underscore VC's top rising star in tech, a mentor at MIT Hacking Medicine, and a novice barista. So Danny, that's quite a mouthful, but it's good to have you on the podcast, man. Oh, thanks for having me, Jacob. Obviously, you're doing a lot outside of school, but what career paths are you considering? Definitely wearing a lot of hats, you know, outside the school capacity. And I'm sure that's like a common theme that you'll be seeing with a lot of the interviewees that you have. And uh, the career path that I'm envisioning myself is always changing. I think that's like a simple way of saying it, right? And then I've been very lucky to be at the intersection of technology, healthcare, and humanities, where I've been able to explore into a lot of career paths. And the one that stands out to me the most is to work in a startup. And startup, as fancy as it may sound, is nothing more than saying that we want to work on a problem, find a scalable way of solving it, and uh, you know, attract talents and investments to scale and succeed in the business. And my passion has always been in serving patients in medication access and management capacity. And you know, my background, I think, kind of reflects so as well. Later down the road, you know, after founding a company or being in a founding capacity of a startup that's solving to uh, helping to solve problems in medication access management. I'm likely to go into venture capital, where I'll be working alongside with the startup community to uh, scale businesses now as a coaching side of the point instead of a player side of the point as a founder. So, I mean, that's in essence what I want to do is, uh, you know, being the startup community and the healthcare community. Very, very cool. I don't want to overwhelm people by talking about the nitty gritty of healthcare, <laughs> but hearing all the work that you do and just knowing personally your involvement with venture capital is really interesting. You touched upon the point that, I mean, currently you're working with country capital, but in the future, you might want to be a coach. How do you see venture capital playing a role into that long-term vision of building your own startup? So maybe it is helpful to take a step back and maybe share with the audience like what venture capital is to or what BC is, because oftentimes I think we get mistaken where it's maybe a job or a career path that people hear a bit about, maybe from your HBO Silicon Valley episode or things like that. But uh, maybe to shine a little more light on what PCs do, I always kind of see it in three parts, right? First, we meet a lot of cool people and a lot of cool companies. And second, we pick out the winners, you know, those who have the venture-backable kind of ideas in the company and those who are set out to become the next unicorn. And the unicorn in the startup world means like a next billion-dollar company. And three is we make sure that they take our check or as uh, you know, Brad Feld and a lot of our senior PC colleagues say, ABC, always be closing your deals. So, you know, venture capitalists uh, do a lot more than, you know, wearing a fancy suit and going around the town meeting people. We kind of play the ligamentary role in the startup community where we go out to offer just more than the financial support. We offer the smart capital in the sense that we provide the connections, we provide the access to the network, we give advice on how to scale the business and how to, especially in the healthcare field, how to go about navigating the regulatory environment. 
And uh, what I do mean by being in a coaching role is actually an analogy that Ann Winblad uh, uses. Ann is a, one of the legendary BCs that's also a limited partner at Contra Capital. And I had a chance to chat with her at Minneapolis last month. And uh, her way of putting how what venture capitalists do is that we're coaches on the sideline where the players are the ones, the founders that are building this exciting momentum and scaling their ideas into business. And what coaches do is we give them a little bit of directions here and there, encouragement on the side, and when necessary, resources to help the players get back on their feet and uh, play the next round, so and so forth. And I believe that, you know, after establishing myself as like a founder in a startup, successfully exiting it in whatever form or manner that might be, I'd like to go back and still contribute to community as a coach on the sideline, as a venture capitalist who's looking into investments in the culture tech field. Wow, that's pretty cool. So you've worked with several startups. I know that you want to have your own startup and you worked for PillPack when it got bought by Amazon for $1 billion. So I think you have, you know, you have some clarity as to what makes successful startups. In your eyes, what is the one thing that makes successful startups? That is a pretty hard one. And, uh, you know, I guess it goes out <laughs> as, as a simple of an answer would be all, you know, other ways to found our next unicorn in a sense. But personally speaking, I think it's the connection to the problem in a sense. Some investors like David Frankel, who was an early investor in uh, Uber and uh, PillPack itself, actually pointed out to me that founder market fit is something that investors look a lot out for. And me coming from the operations background and hopefully in a founding capacity soon, really look forward to getting more of. And founder market fit is simply this, in the sense that there is a personal attachment the founder has to a problem that you're trying to solve. And I think this is like the single most important thing that uh, you can have in the early days is because you might have the right problem, you might have the right solution for it, but most importantly, you must be the right person or you must be the right team to solve it in a sense. That is because a lot of the things don't go as planned, if you might have noticed, uh, in the early days of a startup or any business. And if there's one thing that holds you accountable, that keeps you going, even when the plans are falling apart, when the numbers aren't looking right and the investments are coming in, your dedication to solving that problem, because you have a personal connection to it, will really get you through those hard nights. I know that for TJ, that was kind of his personal connection to the pharmacy world. He grew up in pharmacy, kind of seeing the inconvenience and the troubles that the patients have to go through when they're able to easily manage their medications, multiple medications actually, throughout their disease history, so to speak. And witnessing those problems firsthand really, I think, take you far in life, where we take you far in at least the journey of founding a company, as you'll be constantly reminded of the patient or the face behind the problem that you're trying to solve. So founder market fit is the single most important thing that I would pick out if I had to choose one. Interesting, because obviously a lot of people say self-awareness and hustle, like Gary Vee. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways that you can take that, and I've never heard that, so that's pretty interesting. One thing that I'm particularly interested in with you is that obviously I'm an advocate for people following experts, right? So what's interesting with your career journey up to this point is you worked with an expert business, right? Pillpack and TJ. Then through that, you somewhat became an expert. And now I guess it's this third stage of you using that expertise to grow your own thing. If someone came to you and said, hey, Danny, I want to start a business. I know that I want to be in the startup world, but I have no idea what I should do today. 
you have experience in venture capital and you know what makes startups successful, help me, guide me, give me a path to finding my billion dollar startup. What would you tell them? That's a great question in a sense, because often finding the problem that you really want to solve on, as I elaborated earlier, is really finding the most important thing, right? And I can only speak from my experience, which is I didn't come into college thinking that I was going to go into startup. I first came into college uh, thinking I was going to go into global health. And I wanted to work in the nonprofit and maybe social enterprise sector. And that changed, I think, through you know meetings of individuals around me. As I always like to cook fun at myself, I hung around with the wrong crowd. As a pharmacy student, I was always more closer to the business, the tech community, and the design community even. And all these conversations that I had with them really sparked a lot of these interesting ideas and connections that further led me in life. And maybe taking another step further from that, I would say really one thing that I'm very proud of, and I would definitely do it again when looking back, is I'll try to be standing at the intersection of these interesting things. You know, Walter Isaacson, the previous CEO of CNN and Aspen Institute and writer of biographies for Albert Einstein, Kissinger, and Steve Jobs. Actually, Steve Jobs personally asked Walter to write his biography for him. And lately, Leonardo da Vinci When he came to Boston, I got to ask him some of the questions on what makes a great city or what really builds an innovator. He was able to point out that you have to be standing at the right intersection for Steve Jobs, those tech and humanities, for Leonardo da Vinci, those arts, technology, literature, and so on and so forth, and even cooking, actually. And if there is one advice that I can extrapolate away from those interactions that I had is that you want to be standing at the right intersection of these conversations, those people to further push you down your career path. And the best way to stand at the intersection is to offer value early on. First, be observant, show up to things, be very passionate about the space that you're trying to be at. And then taking a step further, try to bring values. And that at an early stage, like what many of the listeners might be at, would be help connect people. If you know a friend who might benefit a lot from knowing this other friend that you just met, you know, help facilitate an introduction. And venture capitalists, a lot of things that we do is facilitating introductions. Like a great example that I can give is even in my personal like career as BC earlier this year, I was able to connect a friend to another gentleman that I met at a conference, a venture capital conference. That simple intro turned into an acquisition of actually my friend's company. You just never know what that introduction might be able to bring. And you want to be remembered as that person that made this kind of things possible. So join early. Don't be afraid to step in. Age is never an obstacle in this part of the world, in my opinion. If not, I think it's a strength because you're able to bring the energy, bring the stamina. We're the ones who can grind 20 hours of work with maybe four hours of sleep and still be fine the next day. It's hard to do that when you're up in your 50s, 60s, and 70s, right? So really take advantage of that. Be at the right intersection, show up to things, and offer values early on. A lot to extrapolate from that. The thing that I took away from that and that I could relate to is... Just in terms of connections, it's all about finding that one person, right? So I owe a lot to Grant Denmark to introducing me to you. And I say that publicly all the time. And I owe a lot to you, right? Because if we're talking literally just within the podcast, you were the person that connected me and got me to Forbes 70 Under 30 for free as a fellow. 
And then from that, through mutual connection, I was able to connect with the producer of this podcast. So I literally wouldn't be doing this podcast with an expert by my side if it wasn't for you. So I really do appreciate you for that. And to simplify things from Danny, because he's such an expert, I would just say it really is about finding that one person. And from there, everything else can kind of go. But it also, you mentioned this idea of value, right? And I think we can often get our ego in the way. And when you're trying to build your career, when you're trying to build a name for yourself, it's all about giving value to receive value, right? Whether that is someone you meet on LinkedIn, whether that is literally me doing this podcast, right? You've got to be the one to give value first in order to receive it. So both those two things resonated for me, at least. Do you have any other thoughts to that? Another thing that might be interesting to add is like maybe bringing in some research into this as well, right? Adam Grant is the youngest tenure professor at Wharton Business School in University of Pennsylvania. And he's written several you know, best-selling books called The Originals. And another book that I like to maybe uh, extrapolate a little bit on is called A Give and Take. He's basically looking at this part of society of leaders and those who really succeeded in their respective areas and was kind of trying to figure out like what commonalities they shared. And one of it was the tendency or at least the position that you take in a relationship. Are you a giver or are you a taker? And interestingly enough, Adam Grant was able to extrapolate and back up that with research that givers are actually more likely to go a lot further in life, whether that be career success, financial might, and things of that sort. So, I mean, I won't go into all the details in this short talk, but I highly encourage you to read Give and Take by Adam Grant. And you'll be able to see, like, I think why you should approach with the mentality of when I leave this conversation, how do I make sure that we're leaving this conversation both this better person and whatever that might mean, right? And that's another idea that I try to bring onto the table. And that's uh, one of the core values that I upheld this day, upheld every day is the idea of arte. And may sound a little flurry, so excuse me. But arte is a value that the Greeks kind of upheld as a ultimate value to pursue in life. And arte shares the same root with another English word that may be familiar to you called mediocrity. And arte in its essence is striving to be the best version of yourself every day. Imagine a mountain. And this is how the Greeks explain it as well. And since at the bottom of the mountain is where you're currently at, and at the top of the mountain, the peak of mountain is where you strive to be the most ideal version of yourself. We all have these mountains in our own lives. And the discrepancy between the two, where we're at currently and where we strive to be, that's where a lot of the frustrations and I think really the sadness kind of result from. In the sense, like, here's where I'm at, here's where I want to let go, but there's so much gap in between. And Greeks had a word for being stuck in this middle of the mountain, and that is mediocrity, middle of the mountain. And they had a word that described like the closing of the gap between the two, and that is arete. So, you know, apply that mentality, apply the value to how you approach your everyday life, everyday conversations, pre meet, even on the street, you know, even someone who's sitting right next to you in Metro, and try to see how you could leave that conversation better than you found it. And even on top of that, closer to the top of the mountain, right? Very interesting. I never knew that that was where the word mediocrity came from. So, nice little story there, Danny. So I think a lot of people are curious about how you found or even made that pill pack opportunity. We've been friends for a long time, but we've never talked about this in depth. 
Can you talk more to that as someone who wants to get into the startup world and wants to be a part of an existing startup so that they can apply those same philosophies, tactics, et cetera, into their own? I mean, I'd love to say that, again, like I came into university knowing exactly what I wanted to do, knowing exactly what company I wanted to work with, who to talk to and whatnot, but that wasn't the case. It's kind of crazy how the dots connect when looking back. If there's one attribute that I like to emphasize is take more wrong turns. And here's how I think my journey, I guess, with PillPack or even before kind of started was that, you know, I was just roaming around campus and then I stumbled upon this poster that was basically saying pharmacy and design, like here's a company named PillPack, Design the Invisible. It was with a student organization on campus called Scout. And I decided, okay, like I'm a pharmacy student. I like design and whatever that might mean to me back in the day. So I ventured into the room where I met with early, early employees of PillPack. Actually, one of them who I'm meeting in about a week, Jacob, uh, who was like one of the first employees of PillPack, actually. And they were kind of talking about, okay, what does it mean to think about human-centered design in the context of healthcare, especially in the medication management and access? And when I heard about the company in that light, I was fascinated. And funny enough, I was the only pharmacy student in the room because this was, again, something that was only really targeted and advertised to like the design students in that crowd. So from there, I went on to kind of do my research, right? Like, okay, what is this company? Like, who was it founded by? Why was it founded? And I found this guy named TJ Parker, who was the brain behind PillPack's origin. And TJ is a second generation pharmacist who was always interested in exploring outside pharmacy. And I took a look at his bio and thought, wow, like this guy, I could definitely see that I could learn a lot from. And I could see a lot of resemblance as I also am a second-generation pharmacist in training. And you always were more interested in learning more about tech and business and design. So I just rambled all across my social media, like, you know, with my friends. I just basically didn't shut up about this new founding that I had was like this amazing company named Pillpack and this amazing guy named TJ. Like, okay, I need to like sit down with it and actually have a conversation on how this all came about and how I could be a part of this opportunity, even to a small extent. One of the friends at the time was working at the Boston Chamber of Commerce and there was a private event that was held, I think, uh, with TJ Parker and the success of Pillpack. And I still distinctly remember this was a 21 plus event and I was a 20 year old. I think I just turned 20 at the time. And I was like, just sign me, I'll get there. I'll convince whatever <laughs> security that's like guarding the door. And I somehow did, I got into the room and I'm like the only pharmacy student in the room. And we connected there and it was the early 2018 that I got to meet him. And when the time came around where Northeastern has this amazing program as part of the expansion learning curriculum that we have to take some time off from school to work with a company full time. And when the time came, I gave TJ a call, an email, and I said, you know, I'd love to work for you. I know that we haven't had any student really go on to work with PillPack from Northeastern, but I'd love to be that one. And here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to learn. And that came about. And that was the summer of 2018 last year. And the rest is history. Very cool. The tangible takeaways from that story, I think for our listeners, are A, never underestimate and leverage clubs. Scout is one of the most notable clubs at Northeastern, particularly if you're a designer. And the benefit with clubs is that I talk a lot about low-hanging fruit, but it's not like a networking event where you don't know anyone. You can go into this situation and you know that everyone there are students. And so you're probably there because you're both interested in a topic. Just talk about that topic. And then going off on that, the second point is have a follow-up sequence, right? It's very easy for people to 
forget about you. And I'm thinking from a marketer's perspective that Danny might not have got that job if you hadn't been to that Chamber of Commerce, you know, 21 plus event. And I guess this leads into the second question, which is why do you think the startup space is a fit for you? I know for a fact that you will get four hours of sleep on a pretty consistent basis. <laughs> so I would say you have the hustle down. But for those who might not know Danny to the same degree as I do, or just, you know, in more depth beyond just, wow, this kid worked at PillPack when I was acquired by Amazon for $1 billion. Why the startup space for you? You know, maybe speaking a little more about like losing sleep and the <laughs> hustle culture, I definitely didn't know better when I was kind of doing the grinding work. I mean, I was happy to when I was at Pillpack, like work 60 hour a week, right? And then come back home, sleep like a couple of hours and wake up at 10 p.m. and do venture capital work or do more startup work until like two in the morning, right? Show up at work seven or eight in the morning the very next day and repeat. And then never tired me, which is crazy. And I cannot say that for every other job or every other position that I held at other organizations. There's something very unique about the startup space that really gets people aroused like that and that gets people very tenacious like that. Backtracking a little bit and how I transitioned into the startup space, I knew that this was the right fit for me as I was transitioning from the nonprofit to a social enterprise space, actually. So nonprofit, as you know, another great space to be in. And I founded a 501c3 nonprofit organization back in high school. And Dick Craig, we raised, I think, $20,000 and a little more. Over the course of four months of time, we did global citizenship education. And I thought that was what I was going to do. And I took this course with a professor named Rebecca Ruccio at Northeastern, which was on strategic philanthropy and nonprofit management. That was the class name. I still remember it to this day. And we had a class project where we take $50,000, if I remember correctly, from Doris Buffett. And Dev Buffett is the same Buffett that you know, Warren Buffett's, I think, sister or one of the relatives, uh, money and give it to a nonprofit organization of our choice. And I remember sitting in the class and when the time came to pick the organization that we should grant this money to, I remember where I was, you know, one of the students was in the class rooting for this organization that I thought had a financial viability, you know, operational sustainability and a strong mission to really back, but might not have the most emotionally appealing story. And the class picked a nonprofit that had a very good emotional appeal, but in young mind of myself, didn't have so much of operational sustainability or the financial sustainability from my point of view. And obviously, the decision laid with the majority, the current went to the organization that the other students chose. And uh, something small there, and it wasn't at that moment that I thought, okay, this is it. Like, I'm going to switch into the startup world, the for-profit world. But I think that's when I kind of like told myself, I don't want to answer to another person's bottom line. In a sense that like, hey, if I'm writing the check to go to the problem that I want to solve, or I want to check to go to the organization that it designated to be. And uh, the simple mentality of, okay, I want to be the master of my own fate or the captain of my ship kind of seems to persist in a lot of the founders and a lot of the other startup uh, ecosystem stakeholders and members that are interacted on a daily basis. Like a lot of these people are uh, very proactive. Jacob, another, if you remember the post that I posted on Instagram about Bidan, another good friend of ours, a commonality that my friends share, if I had to choose one, is that they persist and they are the ones who defy the momentum of life. John Mayer calls it gravity in his song is. It is that uh, you know, human beings, I think by nature, don't like change. 
And that is very natural, I think, just how we're programmed, just how we really grew over centuries and centuries of time. Human beings are not really accustomed to change. And many people go on without making the changes in life, so to speak, go with the gravity or go with the momentum. And it's hard to break this momentum. Like as many of you who took the physics course know, like, I mean, Newton's first law is that, you know, object at a constant motion will go down that path unless outside force exerts upon them. I think there's that very similar mentality going on in the human head where unless something drastically different happens, like you're most likely to follow the same trajectory that you started off on. And a lot of these startup community members defy that law where they are the ones who, as Apple commercial or Steve Jobs used to say, are not afraid to challenge the status quo. So to maybe answer your question in a more simpler manner, I think I knew that the startup space was right for me when I started interacting with these people, when I started working in that community and found myself never tired as I was trying to solve problems and help out the company in whatever way I can. Very cool. I think we're going to end part one here. But the takeaways from the first half of our episode, at least for me and Danny, you can have your own conclusions before the second half. And listeners, make sure that you subscribe so that you get notified about the second part. But firstly, a lot of networking is just about finding that one person. I think the a career, it's the exact same thing. Just, you know, finding that one person who has that network and who is willing to help you and is on your side. Once you've found that person, give value so that you receive it back. It doesn't have to mean monetary value. It can be long-term career value. It can be a multitude of different things. But once you've given value, follow up with people, right? You talked about how you followed up with TJ and took the time to go to that event. There were probably a lot of people who would be interested to work in Copac, but you were the only one. And you talk about persistence with your friends, but you were the only one who had the persistence to follow up with TJ. And maybe just that was enough to get the job because as someone who wants to have my own startup as well, the best thing you want in an employee is someone who's driven and someone who is on your side and wants to help you grow your vision. So at least those are my takeaways from the first half. Danny, do you have any any other points you want to clarify and or share with our audience just based on the first half? Be proactive. Keep making those connections. Keep reaching out. Keep persisting. Definitely find that nice balance between you know how you de-stress when you're working, but definitely be proactive rather than staying reactive. Too many people in this world are reactive species. We need more of the proactive ones that can really make those change and drive those change. And going off on that, just break down the problem. So as an example, I'm trying to grow my agency right now and I want to acquire more customers. How do I do that? Send 10 cold audit emails every single day. I know that if I do that enough, the numbers will work in my favor. And just through that persistence, I'll get another client. So same exact thing applies to your career, right? It's just, you know, being consistent, putting in the work day after day, you know, those daily tasks and you checking that off and doing that for a couple of days, weeks, months, that is what gets you results in anything. So Danny, thanks a lot for this first half. For those of you listening to this episode, make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified about part two of this episode. And until next time, see you in the second half.